Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Younger Tentacles podcast. I am Pete Neal and today I'm joined by Jake Brown and we are talking today about the musket to rifle. So we're not going to go into uh, things like support weapons, artillery and all that. All we're doing is we're talking about the personal weapon of the British soldier from the matchlock all the way up to the modern day A2. So, Jake. Indeed, hello. Hello. <laughs> let's let's start from the beginning show we're not going to go the beginning as in like handguns and all that yeah. sort of stuff well, and not not and not and not in the beginning um in the garden of eden either so yeah 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 so we're so what we're going to do we're going to start off with the match lock so we're going to go back to the english civil war yes so during the english civil war the most common uh firearm was the match lock so the match lock was a muzzled loaded weapon um, it's probably around about what a 70 caliber, I'd say. Yeah, you say yeah. same, Jake? I'd say about the same because they're, they're usually muskets are usually around that sort of caliber. Um, and it's and it's a trigger mechanism and it's got a thing called a serpent. So, what the serp, what the serpent is, it's it's almost like a prong, but it's all connected to the trigger system where a slow burning match soaked in saltpeter that would be lit and that would be placed in the prongs, so giving it the name the serpent, because it's like a serpent's tongue, that will be placed inside, lined up with the pan of the musket. And when the trigger is pulled, the serpent will come forward, well, come come towards the firer, and then it will then touch the match on the uh, pan, obviously igniting the powder in the pan, and then firing the weapon. Um, no, I perfectly, totally agree. And... Um... Obviously, average rate of fire for these things was extremely slow. Um, for, for the example, that like, during this period, um, the musketeers of any sort of army would have to be supported by pikemen due to the slow rate of fire and the general vulnerability of uh, these um, weapons, really, to be able to maybe get maybe one shot off every minute. 
And bear in mind, this will be doing, done in the heat of battle. So Road to Fire was very much a, if you can get basically one down the spout and off as quickly as you can, but uh, especially this early period of uh, um, portable firearms is um, very much a slow process. And um, this is where you have the introduction of um, things like the bayonet, like the plug bayonet that will be brought in to give the musketeer some protection against say yeah, like that cavalry won't, that, won't, that won't that won't come into a lot later oh god yeah exactly yeah exactly but that um, looks, that's, that's why we got that's why we got pointman because there's no exactly there's exactly. no there's no anti-cavalry measures exactly um, exactly yeah. and also they're notoriously slow as well in some war battles are quite slow in general if you know what i mean indeed um, indeed so like where you got your uh sort of <clears throat> rank of um musketeers they'd almost be like a, in like a block <clears throat> so they would fire but as soon as they fired, they then retire to the back and the next ones would fire. And as they're moving to the back, they'll be reloading as they're going mm. to the rear. So it's just basically, so you have actually got constant fire, mm. which is quite interesting. Mm. Exactly. And as we said, like the pikemen are there to give the defence against mm. um, foot infantry and also cavalry as well, because uh, the musketeers are very vulnerable, especially when they're loading, if there's no fire being given out the pikemen are there to give defense and also in some ways in the assault as well um mm. the pikemen are there to give support but yeah, yeah so the the average range of these weapons is very short um due to them being a smoothbore um weapon uh likely effective range is probably 50 to 75 yards depending on the type of uh, matchlock being used and um wounds generally are from conflicted by these weapons are, are horrific because they're using such a di large diameter projectile and it's it's it doesn't like not like a, a modern um rifle round and just pass through t tissue and th this will punch its way through taking out anything in its way from bone to organs to whatever and it's the wounds suffered by this are horrific and takes everything else with it so it'll take clothing with it and um left with horrible not just from the wound itself, but what can be brought on afterwards as well. Well, yeah, because it's well, it's it's soft lead, isn't it? So as soon yeah. as that's hit the body, that's that that in itself, it's not going to be that round ball anymore. That's going <clears> to <throat> flatten itself out like a saucer. Exactly, like you said it's going to push everything with it. So that's like you said, it's <clears throat> uh, clothing, muscle tissue, and it'll break bone as well. It'll mm. rip bone to pieces, and it'll splinter <clears throat> that bone as well. So you think yeah. the force that's hitting a human body. That's why usually um, if someone was hitting a limb, that's why it's being amputated because there's nothing you can do because it's shattered. Um, even, even to today's standards, um, if you're hit with a musket ball, there's very little that they can actually do to save your limb. Even with the wonders of modern science today, exactly. there's, not a great, there's not a lot they can do because they will completely shatter it. So also with the matchlock, they're not reliable either. Because that's the other, the other no. problem we got with the English Civil War is obviously um, pre-model army is mm. the soldiers were all privately funded by <clears throat> the earls, really, because it's still going on that old concept of like, well, I'm fighting for the king, so you're coming with me. Like exactly. Not, and exactly. you're going to have what I give you to fight with. So so even on the battlefield, you've got a range of different calibers for those matchlocks as well, because they obviously they haven't got a standard, they haven't got a standardized weapon. Exactly. And it got... creates huge supply problems and just yeah. not just obviously obviously supply problems during battle, but even before battle, trying to get 
the right ammunition, the correct sizes, the right amount of powder, etc., for each different firearm to each individual unit, and it creates such a havoc, and it's such an ineffective way. So this is why with the new model army, it creates a sort of regimented and standardized way of equipping the uh, the British soldier. Well, what a lot of the musketeers actually did, they'd actually make their own bullets yeah. as well, um, which is more often than not is what they'd do. So they'd um, go and get <clears> the lead from somewhere. So while on the march, anywhere they could see it had the lead roof, obviously they wouldn't go and nick it off a church, <laughs> being, <laughs> being the God-fearing people that they were back then. But what they could do was they could go into the crypt of a church and find a lead-lined coffin because the occupants ain't going to need it anymore, are they? <laughs> exactly. And that can make a lot of musket balls. <clears throat> indeed, indeed. And yeah. I used to find a lot of the, uh, what he used to say was, he was um, uh, with the musketeers, is that usually used to know a musketeer about his musket. Do you know why? Why is that? Their teeth used to be green. Oh, lovely. Because uh, um, it was said that what they'd do was, because obviously you've got your little, because you, you've got your pouch with your balls in. Yeah. Because obviously, uh, well, there was paper cartridges, but you had, um, your, your bandolier that went across your chest, your, your apostles, <clears throat> yeah, there, the little wooden bottles of gunpowder. Um, so you'd obviously pour the powder down the muzzle of the, of the weapon, but then you have to get a ball out with the wad. Mm. And what they'd do, so to try and save that time of reaching into that pouch, opening a pouch, fumbling for a ball to drop down, what they'd do is they'd just take a small handful of balls and put them in their mouth. And each time they needed one, they just take it out of their mouth and put it down the barrel, yeah. put it down the muzzle. And then that's why they ended up getting <clears throat> these green teeth. Yeah, lovely bit of lead poisoning, isn't it? Yeah, and obviously uh, the matches as well. So like I said before, they were, they were soaked in saltpetre. Um, but that's not reliable either, because if it's wet, it's not going to burn so well. And you've got to keep on blowing on it to keep that hot. That's the important thing, because that 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 match needs to be red hot for it to ignite the powder. So, Indeed. Was, um, so if you go and watch uh, people like the American, uh, no, uh, the English of a War Society or the Sealed Knot, watch there because even today they're in the same. They got to do the same thing as what the Musketeers back then were doing. You always see them every single time. They'll they'll blow the match, take the match away, like hold the match in their fingers halfway at the barrel to keep it away from the pan. Yeah. See them loading it. Then just and just as they're putting this the match back into the serpent, they'll blow it, put it into the serpent, line it up, and then they'll fire. Um, apparently, I've there's another one I've heard as well. Another another pub quiz one for you mm. is uh, keep it under your hat. Comes from the Musketeers as well. Okay. Apparently, it was do um, is putting the match underneath their. Um, Felt hats to try and to keep them dry, so you, they just kept it under the hat. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. How true that is, I don't know. That's just something. <laughs> I, that's just one of those. Uh, I don't yeah. think it's just one of those old <clears throat> tales that have been sort of, you know, one of those old myths that have been yeah, passed. Yeah. Sort down, of old but... wives' tales kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it? Um. Because uh, but... I because I heard you mention about apostles. Obviously, that's the where they carry the yeah. powder. Is, is it the case of like they have twelve, and that's it why is, they were called yeah. apostles? Yeah, the twelve apostles. Yeah, because remember, these are very religious people back yeah, in yeah. those days, especially when you got the uh, um, the what I call the extremists of the Protestant faith being the Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, yeah, so yeah, they had these uh, twelve bottles, which are, are known as apostles. But I think 
the actual term apostle is more of a Victorian thing. I okay. Think. I think I could be wrong. I'm just going off the top of my head for this, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure I heard some, because I remember I mentioned it once to somebody and they're like, yeah, that was a Victorian thing. I'm like, was it? <clears throat> okay. Um, but I don't know. Um, I think it is. I, I, it's, 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 well, it's plausible to me. It's plausible yeah, that, yeah. you know, 12 apostles. Um, but then I thought, well, I could see where that other person's come from, where they turn around, oh, no, 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 that was just a Victorian thing to make it sound better. Um, yeah. But both sides both sides of the argument, I could see both of them, which one mm. is is true. Uh, not <clears throat> Steve's our man. Unfortunately, Steve's not, he's, he's very under the weather, so he couldn't join us. Yeah, this it's a shame. Hope he gets more soon and all this sort of and, stuff. So. And he, did, he, he, he would know <clears throat> far more about the English Civil War than what I yeah. do. Yeah. Um, I just... <laughs> I just know enough to get me by. But, <laughs> that's, um, that's fair enough. I think it, it's sort of one of those things, like the whole with the uh, uh, longbowman, that whole thing about the two fingers kind of thing. It's, it's like that. It's, it's, yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, it's sort of born yeah. out of somewhere and it's, it's gotten so much traction over the years. It seems like it's possibly true, but it's, it's probably yeah. not. Yeah. Well, I know, I I know the two fingers thing definitely is. is. Exactly. I mm. think that's what that is, I think. Mm. Definitely. But also they're unreliable. That's the other thing. These mm. these match locks, they're not because they weren't really proofed. So <laughs> yeah, they were made and just sent out. <laughs> oh, good luck with that. Exactly. It's, it's, so, it's like it's, definitely um, definitely not the days of mass production and and proofing and yeah, and it's very much of case of uh, you're putting your life on the line with uh, something you don't know will work ninety nine percent of the time. So. Well, exactly. Um, <clears throat> but then also we come into the new modern army as yeah. well. So the uh, parliamentarians uh, create the new modern army. And then we start to see um, a standardised weapon. So now the matchlocks that they're, they're carrying are now standardising. So they've all got the same sort of calibre. They've all got the cal- like same calibre and things like that. So this is where, so this is where our journey starting. Obviously, with uh, with the history of firearms, there's a lot of technological innovation with firearms, as we're going to find out uh, in the next uh, thirty odd minutes or so. Um, so obviously, but then during that time, you've also got dog locks, which is the early form of a flint of a flintlock. Yeah, um, not very common. Um, that to some reenactors you'll see on the circuit where you see like the sealed knot and the uh uh english civil war society where you'll see like 12 people rocking around with a with a dog lock it's like but they're not as common as what indeed indeed that you know it's because they wanted one they wanted a dog lock so they're using a dog lock um obviously the thing with a dog lock is very good because you ain't got to try and keep a match alight um but the problem is it's price. It's quite yeah. expensive to produce. Yeah, indeed. But I think indeed. all those little faculties that you know, all the workings that are going into the latches and all that in all the working parts, I should say, into the lock, that costs money. Indeed. So indeed. yes, they wear a belt, but usually if you did see someone with a dog lock, it's because they brought it. Um mm. that's why you'll see a lot of uh, that's why you'll yeah, you'll see officers. So officers of the time, you would see they have like they might have a dog lock pistol. Or even a wheel lock as well, mm. which is another um, interesting one. 
Yeah, um, you sort you sort of see that with sort of mounted troopers of the English Civil War. Yeah, with yeah, um, do, sort of yeah. with sort of very early dog locks or wheel lock um, pistols and carbines. That's right. Yeah, because the wheel locks are um, a lot of them are made by what um, clock makers, watchsmiths, yeah. uh, clocks, clocksmiths, because of the workings. Because the workings of um, the working parts of a wheel lock are very similar to like the workings of a clock so yeah. they used to make the actual wheels so uh try and describe one for the try and describe describe one for the viewers so you imagine, imagine you've got like a flint you got your flintlock a flintlock pistol for example uh or muzzle loading pistol where the pan would be for the uh gunpowder there isn't what you got is that is the wheel um, and so you'll have a you'll have a nib on the side, and that'll be wound up with a key. So you have to wind that up with a key, um, and then what will look like it looks a bit like a serpent off a matchlock. That would come down. That's got um, I think it's got flint on. I think they have. Um, What's a certain top of stone? I think the wheel might have a certain top of stone on it. That'll be placed on top of the wheel, and when you pull the trigger, that uh, mechanism will spin. Because obviously you've released the mechanism that will spin, creating the friction, which would ignite the powder, and then fire the pistol. Again, a very expensive thing to produce. So, so even at this time, we are seeing that innovation of a flintlock. Um, so, moving onward from the English Civil War, if we go move to the late 1600s, coming on to 1700s. Yeah, we're now what we're now got. Um, in the late 1600s, we're now got dog locks. Yeah, so, sort of, there's sort of like a nice transitional period. For example, yeah, like, yeah for example, like during like the Monmouth Rebellion, um, like uh, 18, uh, 1880, uh, sorry, 1685, um, you got the Battle of Sedgeball, where um, a lot of the, I think it's one of the Highland units, I think, is using matchlocks, but the rest of the um, rural force is using dog locks. Um, yeah. in that sort of action. It's a similar things like at the Battle of the Boyne as well. You've got the opposing forces of the um, uh, Williamite forces using uh, dog locks and, and flintlocks and the opposing forces using matchlocks mainly as well. So it's that whole sort of transition period of the late 1600s where the sort of, they're sort of entwined with each other and eventually the matchlocks are being phased out and you can mm. see the um much more advantage of the dog lock system yeah and also i sort of um what i sh should mention as well is what a dog lock actually is so like i said it is the early form of a flint lock it's you know it's got you think of a flint lock you, you've already got the image in your head so the dog so what it is is that so when we progress to the next uh musket this can actually do this but there's no locking mechanism to keep keep the um sort of like a half cock basically yeah so, so you can't put it at half cock so it, it can either be set to fire or not so what obviously if you set that to fire and you're loading it that's a bit dodgy isn't it <laughs> um so what the dog is it's like a hook and what that would do is you pull it up to half cock and you'll push up this hook which is the dog that'll be hooked into place and that'll actually hold it in half cock so you could safely load the weapon or have it loaded and it'll just hold it in place. Um, pull the trigger, nothing will happen because the dog is holding the mechanism. But then as soon as you pull that lock back 
to the to full lock, then the 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 dog will naturally drop itself out and it's ready to fire. So that's that's that is a dog lock. Yeah, I've described, if I've described <laughs> that well enough, it's it's basically like, it's like it's a half cock. But it's also t- almost like a safety catch mechanism in a way, which is good as well. No, that's exactly what um, exactly what it is. Early form that's of safety exactly catch. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly what it is. Uh, obviously, at this time now, we've now got the plug bay in it. So mm. pikemen are now redundant because the infantryman can is also able to act as a pikeman. But obviously, the downside to the plug bay in it, the socket bay in it, hasn't been invented yet. Um, so all it is 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 it's just it's is a knife mm. um, with a circular grip which actually slides into the muzzle of the musket. So that's but obviously the the good thing about that is you don't need pikemen anymore. So the so your musketeer or fusilier as it is now um, can take on horses. But the problem is they can't fire at anybody. Well, they, they can have a go. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to lose their... They're, they're a gonna, very big shot gonna, projectile, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're going to they're gonna lose their plug bay in it. So, yeah, so it's got its, it's, got its good points and it has got its bad points as well. Yeah. But we're now seeing an evolution, aren't we? So we're now <coughs> looking... It's now <coughs> starting to... It, with a modern mind, it's modernised in itself. Yeah. Obviously, to them, it's cutting edge tech cutting edge technology yeah and some sort of the most famous battles which say within british army service the dog lock being used is say at like blenheim um in uh i think 1702 i think i might have got that wrong um so and that's sort of the main sort of parts that's been used in the war of the spanish war of the spanish succession so it's being used there this and obviously mm. this is so the flintlock as we know it now wouldn't come in until about 20, 25 years later or so, properly anyway, in mass. Well, yeah, production. Well, at least you got the socket bay in it before then. Yes, as well. yes, so indeed, it's like indeed. Sort of the early seventeen, so what, seventeen fifteen? <clears throat> yeah, is the first use of a socket bay in it. So now, yeah. So now, the soldier he can fix his bayonet, and he can and he can also operate his musket at the same time. Mm. Uh, but yeah, then, yeah it makes the infantry uh, much more yeah. versatile. Oh, absolutely. Um, and obviously, then from that, within I think about five years, what was it, eight, uh, 1720, 1722, the brown vest makes its appearance. Yeah. And um, going into sort of that sort of period, um, it's being used for basically patrolling the early fledgling of the empire at this well, point. It's carving, um, it's carving the empire. Exactly. Exactly. And not obviously not just abroad, but at home. You have mm. many different times of the. Uh, Jacobite uprising in Ireland and Scotland as well, um, all the way up until say the the, the large Jacobite uprisings of the um, of the seventeen uh, forties, ending with the well ending with the uh, Battle of Culloden in uh, uh, seventeen forty five I think it was, um, and it shows the the tactics being used and the regimented style of how this weapon's being employed with the with the new socket bayonets with the new tactics with the new um, drill and everything that goes with this firearm that it's a very effective weapon and for, for example like even with it though um scott and um, the highland troops have been able to overrun british forces before during the previous engagements in those uprisings but it was when it was used effectively in the correct way the flintlock musket was extremely effective extremely effective oh absolutely and obviously it's not a dog lock anymore 
Yeah. So we can actually now, it's actually got the technology to, cl- to cock it to half cock as well. So it's already got its own self, uh, own built-in safety mechanism as well. Indeed. Um, Obviously, the, the brown vest will take many forms in its service in various patterns, but the the only way it changes is that, you know, it, it, they, it becomes a bit shorter. They find better ways of machining, of machining it. Because obviously, we're, we're in the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution as well, you know? So all these new technologies are now coming forward going, hang on a minute, we can make that better now because mm. of this new technology that's come in. So yeah, and quicker and cheaper as well. And exactly quicker and cheaper. You know, that's why that, you know, it was, it was used by the British army for hundred years. Mm. You know, it'll, it'll be used in the British army for a hundred <coughs> years. Well, as, as a flintlock, but actually as that uh, weapon, it will actually extend itself a little bit, but we'll go mm. on to that in a bit, but indeed the, um, but yeah, Hundred years <clears throat> the British Army was using that weapon for. So, you know, it they used that obviously like I said, from the early 1700s all the way into the 800s and through the Napoleonic Wars as well. Indeed. So, yeah, so it sees basically sees action in every single corner of the globe. It does, um, yeah. With not just yeah. with the British, but with obviously with other different nations as well. Um, and we'll say with Indian troops, with with the Ameri- with Americans, revolutionaries as well during the American yeah. War of Independence, being used on both sides heavily seeing action in india africa everywhere you can think of um through multiple conflicts from uh the american revolution the austrian succession um the uh beginning state well obviously through that the napoleonic wars etc as well war of 1812s that went back to the americas again and um oh and obviously the seven years war as well what i i think personally is i would say is the probably the first world war in proper terms but um so sees action through all these conflicts and through the hands of hundreds of thousands of uh, men um, and some women as well, um, and basically proving its worth as an effective weapon. Obviously, yes, it has its limitations, the way it's slow to load. He, trained soldier, if he was good, could probably get three rounds off in a minute, but that's on a good day, um, bearing the weather. But uh, it proves itself to be um, the effective weapon that it is. And when you get into the Industrial Revolution age, so easy to manufacture, and it can be made in its thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and you've got to think of the blokes who are using these as well. You know, like the British soldier of 1914, <clears throat> his discipline and his professionalism is no different. They're, exactly. you know, they're, in a, they're all they're doing, they're, they're in a different time period with a different uniform but their professionalism is the same. And, and what we've got with the British army is that we're also training with live ammo as well. Yeah. That's a good, that's, and that was something that we um, had on the French during the Napoleonic Wars. Cause a lot of them, when they were training their blokes to use these must use their mus- muskets, they were just using black powder. So they were, they were, you know, firing, but they weren't getting the full, you know, they weren't getting the re like the recoil and exactly. things like that. Yeah. So they're just lining them up. So, right three rounds a minute mm. and then there's a start and, that, and that's why a British soldier could do that because remember you got you know you got you got you, you got your French column marching towards you and you need yeah. to stop that column mm. so more rounds you can get down that's the other good thing is also our tactics are a little bit different to the French where they'll march in a block where it's probably about 80 men across at 100 deep um we'll actually have our battalion of what 800 men 800 to maybe a thousand men all in one big long line so exactly. just two ranks and that's you know 
you got a lot of lead going into that column. Exactly, exactly. Because if you're uh, doing that three yeah. times a minute, you're there's going to be a lot of <clears> dead enemy, isn't there? Exactly, exactly. Because you sort of put them to a point about sort of the training using guys. I mean, ammunition. It's exactly the same sort of situation with the Royal Navy as well. They were they were trained constantly to be proficient using live ammunition and to get that rate of fire up to where it's proficient, which is why you see the Royal Navy is so effective against the French during the Napoleonic Wars, because they trained um, to be efficient and to be accurate and to be quick as well. Um, it shows at, say, like the Nile or at Trafalgar. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's not like it is with a modern soldier where he's got yeah. to learn a million and one things. Let's <laughs> yeah. go back. Let's go to the basics of what these blokes, what, what their training actually was. Apart from drill, because drill, if you don't know drill, you can't fight. If you can't yeah. fight, you die. Yeah. Because that's what drill was all about back then. Is obviously uh, drill today, it <clears throat> arcs back to that time. But we had to do drill to actually fight a battle. That's where it all comes from. Yeah. Um, so if you ain't doing drill, what else are you going to do? Well, you've got to be proficient in your weapon, haven't you? So exactly. what these infantrymen were doing was they were doing their three hours worth of drill each morning. And then they're firing. You know, they've, they've got a few hours firing on, well, say on the range, but um, but then they'll be they'll be do, they'll be honing in on that three rounds a minute to try and keep that keep those rounds up because that's what they've got to do. You know, apart from obviously they obviously have their, their block jobs, so to speak, so jobs around the barracks and things like that. But actually training, what else have they got? I'd obviously route marches and things like that. But from actually learning the million and one things that a, a soldier today's got to learn it's very minimal to the soldier of that time period from the uh, 18th, uh, 18th, 19th century. If you're enjoying listening to this episode, then you need to take a look at an ebook released by our very own Steve Davis. A concise history of the use and evolution of the rifle charts the experimentation and implementation of rifles to the British Army between 1740 and 1840. Priced at only £3.99 to podcast listeners, simply use the discount code PODCAST at checkout. The book includes numerous high-quality images of original firearms from Leeds Armouries. Simply follow the link in the description below to purchase, and remember, all proceeds go towards helping us to keep history alive. Right, and obviously, uh, we've got our muskets, but what about rifles as well? So mm. rifles, you know, they, they are, um, I think it's documented way back in the, I think it's almost like the 15th century, the first rifles were being experimented with. But the problem is it's very, very, very expensive to produce and Indeed. remain so for hundreds and hundreds of years after that. Um, but, then we, but then we come into the 1760s. Um, Actually, maybe a little bit before that, because there was um there was an officer um who actually ordered some like 40 rifles. Um it was all out of his own pocket. It was um these 40 rifles he managed to get. Um I think he took them on an expedition somewhere or something, but it didn't take off. Um they they had them, but then they got put back into the tower armories and but then there's a bloke called Ferguson. Um and he'd actually, I think he'd, 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 he'd um, 
he'd actually had contact with one of these rifles. Um, and he was quite a clever bloke. Um, and yeah. he thought, ah, oh, what can we do with this? So what he he did, he created what would become known as the Ferguson rifle. So the Ferguson rifle um, isn't actually a muzzle loader. So the rifle that they kind of trialed, that 40 that they had, um, they, they were muzzle loaders. But this one's a breech loader, which is yeah. very, you know, which is quite pioneering <clears throat> stuff for the 1760s. So it's quite pioneering. So um, it was something called a screw plug breech. It was called so. the The way it sort of operate was uh, so you had your trigger guard with your trigger, and that was part of the mechanism to open the breech. So the breech was actually a hole on top of the barrel. Yeah. Um, so what the soldier would do would twist the trigger guard, and that would then on a, on that um, on a screw would bring that down from the. Um, top of the barrel to open it up and then you'd put your cartridge in and then tighten it back up again and prime it and fire it. Um, and, and the trials from what records show, the trials were very, very successful. Um, the, uh, like the governing bodies and all that, they were like, yeah, love it. Really, really, really good. And they were on the verge of putting this into production. Um, obviously 1760s, there's a lot going on in the Americas at that time, isn't there? <laughs> Is it indeed, indeed. Um, but unfortunately, um, it never went to production because because what the idea was is that he um, Ferguson wanted them to go to light infantry troops. So mm. every regiment had a light company, and you had the likes of like Rogers Rangers, um, people like that. And he wanted that rifle to go to them because he saw that as being very beneficial for that type of soldier and, and the role that they play on the battlefield. Yeah. But unfortunately, cost. They're like, sorry, no, we just can't. We can't justify buying this or producing this. It's going to be far, far, far too expensive. Yeah. Because yeah, that, that was so I think he tried to bring in 1776, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and then also with the 1776 um, pattern infantry rifle as well. Um, sort of along sort of side of that, or you, some were used, but as you said, like production wise, it's like nowhere near what was really sort of needed. Um, yeah. Um, obviously, then when we uh, when obviously we're, we're in the uh, American Revolutionary War, we're up against these Minutemen with squirrel guns. Yeah. And these squirrel guns are rifled, and they're seeing how accurate these things are. But British Army, being what it is, is quite slow to develop. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so about 30 years later in the 1790s they then go right we need we need something so we can counteract this sort of thing happening again uh, it's all right it's, it's taken us 20 odd years to, to realize this <laughs> but we need something so that's when they then create the first rifle regiment in the British army, which, which was obviously the fifth turn 60th, uh, but they are armed with a Jaeger rifle. They weren't issued with the rifle that all riflemen would ultimately get Yeah, because um, Germans have always been very, very good at building rifled muskets for hundreds of years before that. Uh, very immaculate um, and ornate as well. Mm. Uh, very good very good rifle manufacturers. But obviously a Jaeger rifle, they come from Germany. 
And the problem is uh, Germany is now going to be, you know, no good. You know, it's no good to get your rifle from Germany, but we need our own one. Um, And so a advert went out, say we want someone to design us a rifle. And a man of a man named Ezekiel Baker, who had a gunsmith in Whitechapel, London, um, he came up with a design, um, and he obviously called it the it become famously known as the Baker rifle. Um, it had its trials; they loved it, and it was cheap enough to mass produce. And they threw it into production. So all these these new rifle regiments. So the blokes from the 5th, 60th, and you've got now the Experimental Rifle Corps who will soon become... So the Experimental Rifle Corps is uh, in 1800, and in 1800 uh, who would become known as the 95th in 1803, I think if I remember right, um, who would then become the 95th Rifle. And they would all be issued, not with a Baker rifle, but with an infantry rifle. It's, o- it's only a Baker rifle if it's produced at Ezekiel Baker's gunsmith in Whitechapel. That's the only way that would be a Baker rifle. Okay. The rifles that they received were all mass-produced at Tower Armouries. Yeah, yeah. So they all got mass-produced. So that's just an infantry rifle to the Ezekiel Baker pattern. Yeah. So they are... So. There's another, there's another pub quiz one for you, Jake. Uh, someone <laughs> says to you, Baker rifle. Ah, but was it made by Ezekiel Baker or was it uh, one of the mass-produced ones? Um, so we're now seeing a rifle on the battlefield. Obviously not in large numbers, agreed. We're still using smoothbore muskets, but mm. that technology is there now. And it's not, <clears throat> I wouldn't say mainstream, but that you can see... Uh, where technology is now heading because you've got regiments being issued with this new rifle granted they're like infantry regiments but nonetheless these blokes are now being issued with a rifle so obviously then we move up to um 1839 yeah i'd say yeah so it'd be the 1839 pattern musket Mm. so this is what i said earlier so like the baker the uh, the brown best um, was used for over a hundred years and a little bit more because what they did was is that they were very uh, what this is something I've, I you know I thought was quite interesting they do this they do this again um, moving on later um, with another with another weapon um, what they did was they took the brown besses and what they did was they took the locks off so they took the flint locks off and they replaced it with a percussion cap. So much more reliable now. Um, percussion caps have been in existence for quite a few years before, but again, same old story, expensive to produce. Very expensive to produce, and it can't be justified to issue your soldiers with it. Exactly. But now, especially the 1830s, we are literally in full swing of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and they're like, hang on a minute, we can make cap locks really cheaply now. So, okay, what we do? Well, making a complete new weapon will be expensive. But how about we just recall all the be- all the brown besses and we just take the flint locks off and we just replace them with the cap lock. And that's what they did. And then there was a fire. It was 1841. Yeah, 1841, there was a fire. 
um, at Tower Armouries where there was a massive stack load of these brown besses and they got caught in the fire. So they were like, ah, what are we going to do now? <laughs> um, so what they then did is, well, we'll have to just make one, won't we? So what they did was they 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 copied a brown vest pretty much, but then they renamed it the 1842 pattern. Yeah. So um, the markings are different. So like those who know their stuff about muskets and guns and that um, will know that, you know, where the lock mechanism is, is it's very different because obviously the brown best ones have still got all the markings from when it was a brown best. Yeah. Um, but obviously the 1842 pattern doesn't have any of that. It has its own new markings uh, to go on the side. Indeed, indeed. And then, and that goes through, that basically lasts in service for just under a decade or so. And then it's brought in is the 1851 pattern uh, rifle, basically, well, rifled musket, I should say. Um, yeah, the P53 Enfield. Yeah, so you've got the P51, which, is, which was introduced first, which, yeah. sees, which sees its sort of first action in the um, first part of the uh, uh, Crimean War, basically. Mm. And it was then after, I think it was during the siege of Sevastopol, really, um, is when you see pattern 53 is coming in, um, which is sort of the updated and sort of uh, finalised version, I would say, of the 51. And for, for, for the time it was, um, amazingly accurate rifles, well, rifle oh, muskets. That's about, uh, yeah, I was about to say, it's rifle. So now yeah. you've got every infantry of the British Army <clears throat> has now got a rifle. Mm. Yeah, and, it's, and, yeah. And, and 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 new ammunition. Yeah, definitely. Because like it, it, even in like the early parts of the Crimean War, alongside the Pattern Fifty One, you still have some units being sent out with the um, eighteen forty two uh, muskets. Um, they sort of go hand in hand for a short while until they're immediately pulled out of service mm. once the stocks come in of the new one. So you see, it's, there's always like a transitional period. There's always this sort of a, this uh, this the um, supply chain trying to catch up with how warfare is really going and how the supply and how everything's going. But um, this development of firearms from the 42 all the way up to the 53 is so fast and it's being literally trialled by fire as well during the Crimean War. And mm. it's been shown that like infantry, like standard infantrymen are able to pick off Russian sentries off the walls of Sevastopol from several hundred yards mm. with, with relative ease. And it's it shows the the... Um, effectiveness of this new firearm and of the what rifling does is much more effective than anything they could have thought of just say 20 or 30 years prior really well yeah and obviously with <clears> that <throat> it's the new ammunition because yeah. what we're seeing now is what we perceive to be a bullet because mm. it's not a ball anymore it's actually a bullet shape so the head of a so if you take the head of a uh i'll say something more like a pistol round right mm. take take a nine mil or something like that the head of a nine mil that's the kind of shape we're looking at for a mini ball mm. um you know so we've got that bullet shape but also with a musket ball they rattle down the barrel that's the other thing because they are a little bit smaller than the actual barrel size, so they do rattle. They do, they, you know, that's what also makes them a bit inaccurate because where you got that rattle going down the barrel, it will send it off somewhere where you're probably not exactly pointing. But with that, um, with the mini ball, it's got a hollow in the bottom of it, so that little hollow in the bottom, it, it's got a skirt, so it's made of lead and it's got this lead skirt. 
so when the round is dropped down the muzzle of the uh, rifle, it drops down like a musket ball would. It just drops straight down. Obviously, you ram it down. Then, then you bring it up, fire it. But when you fire it, soon as that charge is ignited, the heat of that powder charge igniting melts that skirt and pushes it outwards. And what it does, it then grips the rifle barrel. So it grips that rifle barrel and starts, obviously, what, do, what rifling does, it twists the round down the barrel. So you've now got that tight grip on that rifling and then it's coming out with its twist and it's then it's, go, it's hitting straight to its target where the bloke's Indeed. aiming it. Indeed. To sort of like, yeah, it's like people were saying, it's, it's, it's like almost like it's, a, I think it's described as a conical shape, it, almost like a, sort of describe it like, like a thimble really, in a way of like, mm. as it gap of, Bit, bit in the bottom where the gases were then expand into and then fill up the rifling. Yeah, and it even even though it's uh, different to say a musket ball, the uh, still as we were talking about earlier, wounds created by this by this ammunition is horrific, absolutely horrific. Like in the Patton Fifty One, the caliber was larger, so it was um, I think it was a seventeen mil basically a diameter round. It's like a huge caliber round, which is going hurtling and basically terminal velocity and hit as as previous like with musket balls hitting flesh bone and basically just tearing through it and breaking through anything it can so these these weapons are way much more accurate now and even much more deadly than their predecessors i'd say well yeah even though the um the you know the pattern 53 that's actually that that downsized its caliber to a 57 i think it was yeah 50 um, uh, 577 i think it was yeah mm. Yeah, so even though it's a smaller cover, it's yeah, it's still a big round, you mm. know. So that that's bigger than a forty-five <clears throat> round, which is which is insane. Oh yeah, absolutely. But a very good a very good rifled musket, and it obviously not only would it be being used in the British Army, it's going to find itself overseas as well. You know, exactly. You know, the um, the Confederate Army is going to be using it during the American Civil War. Mm. Um, Probably not not so much for the Union, but definitely with the South because uh, we liked selling the South guns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> during yeah. the American Civil War. <laughs> yeah, apparently the, the Union uh, sort of um, imported them through like agents and like mm. private companies, but all, with like the Confederacy, they basically just kept buying them straight from the British government. Really. Yeah, well, that's yes, so, it. Yeah. 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 They they supplied us with our cotton. We supplied them with guns. So <laughs> indeed, uh... and and with a few ships as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's all. It's you know, the, you know the the pattern fifty three saw service not only in uh, the British Army but also the American Army. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's a very good weapon. Very, yeah. very, very, very good weapon. Extremely. And then like so, from, from yeah, from there you see like um, minor adjustments of the pattern and different. Uh, service um patterns as well like for example in india the 1858s and the same with the royal navy as well the able adopted a different one and then the indian power changed again in uh, 1859 yeah. so all, all these different little changes increments gradually through the years um post the actual uh, sort of um adoption of the of the enfield musket yeah. obviously like like with like the brown vest is that you'd have like your cavalry like you said you'd have your cavalry version <laughs> 
Exactly. So yeah. there's always carbine versions of these weapons. Mm. So these weapons that we're talking about, yeah, they're the personal weapon of an infantry soldier. Mm. But if you say go to a cavalry roll, it's the same weapon, but it's carbon art. It's 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 a carbine. So they've just cut it in half, almost uh, half the size of it. So we now come to 1866. So in 1866, obviously, uh, technology in firearms has again improved quite a bit. If um, if you look over to the Americas at this time, during the American Civil War, we're now starting to see breech loaders, you know, like things like the Winchester and things that are starting to appear or early forms of. Um, um, there's one that the Americans had, which is, uh, which I should say, not, not so much Winchester, the, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was from the cavalry, car, their version of a cavalry carbine. I think it was the Sharps carbine, I think. That's it, Sharps, the Sharps carbine. So you got things like this happening now. And obviously, with that, our, our, uh, our weapons people back in England are going, ah, this uh, Sharps carbine job, this is, uh, this is interesting. How have they done that? So obviously, they're starting to think, oh, they made it. And they've gone, ah, we can make our own breech loader. So that's what they do. So they bring out the Schneider, the Schneider Enfield. So the Schneider Enfield, like I said before, like the Brown Besses where they recycled them, they did exactly the same with the um, with the uh, Pattern 53s, with the um, Enfield rifle muskets. They did exactly the same thing. They called them in, and what they did was is that they took the uh, middle section out and replaced it with a breech. It's still got the hammer, so it's still got that percussion cap hammer, but now, it, instead of the nib having a percussion cap on it, it's, it's now a firing pin. So that hammer is now striking a firing pin. So with these, all it was, it was, a, it was almost like a trap door. So you open the top up, took a cartridge, which was a paper cartridge to start off with. So you had your lead, so you had your lead mini ball, um, a thick sort of waxed paper cartridge, uh, the brass base with a percussion cap, inside later that will actually become brass um a bit later down the line but they haven't worked out how to do that yet so that will be placed into the into the weapon where you pushed it in with your thumb close the trap door pull the cock to um all the way back pull the hammer back um and fire it as soon as it fired put it to half cock open the trap door again um and then extract the round there was a there was two versions of this memory serves me right because the first ones the locking mechanism didn't really work very well and it was and it was renowned that when the fire fired it would fire but the recoil would actually open this trap door and <laughs> end up getting a shell in the face <laughs> um so then went back and made the second version of it where it was actually a proper lock so when they actually closed the close when it actually closes the breach it actually locked so you could fire unlock it then put another round in but the other thing as well is on the side to eject the round um it was all i think it was all on the firing block um all you did was pull the firing block towards you and that would extract the round just tip it out so uh so you got a good little bit of technology there absolutely and advances the or not really the rate of fire but the efficientness of the british soldier at the time as well and the snyder 
um, sees action, I think, in like India and that, I believe, as well. Mm. Um, so, and it, and it shows its effectiveness, the amount of the firepower advantage now the standard British soldier now has over its general enemies at the time where, well, most of them didn't really have firearms, but even so, you now have that huge fire advantage where you don't have to bring a rifle down to the ground and to reload it because it's not muzzle loading anymore. And it's such a massive leap forward. But the thing is, like, technology at this time is leaping forward so many quick, so many quick steps that um, countries are really, really trying to play catch up, really, at this point. But Snyder Enfield is such a big leap forward towards the breech loading. Uh, not, it's definitely not small bore at this point, but it's getting to that point. And obviously with the Snyder, as Pete said, we're now seeing metallic cartridges, which is another leap forward. And um, and it's going in big strides going forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. And even if, um, you know, the British soldier is fighting someone who is armed and if, it, if they are, they've, they've probably got a musket still as well. So they might be able to get off like two, three rounds a minute. British soldier... You know, he, he's probably doing about five a minute now if he's doing quick succession. He's very good at what he's doing. So, um, yeah, so he's definitely now dominating the battlefield in these countries that he's now fighting in or policing the empire, as we sometimes know it as. <laughs> so, no, from that, uh, so from that, so from that, we move. The thing is, like you said, it's this um, quick succession now of technology because the Industrial Revolution has gone leaps and bounds in the last, even like within those five years. So literally you got 17, so that was 1866 and come to 1871, a new rifle is now being issued, which is the famous Martini Henry, um, a complete new rifle. Um, so all those Snyders, because remember these, the Snyders are recycled Enfield rifle muskets. So they're quite old by this point now. So they, you know, they were good. What? Uh, 30 year old, shall we say? Yeah. They're about 30 year old. Things are starting to wear out. And also we're finding a better, we've now got a better mechanism to mm. load the cartridge. So instead of opening the breech block to insert the round, close the breech block, <coughs> what we've now got the Martini Henry, we've got the Martini action. So it works a little bit like a, like a Winchester does in the sense of um, it has a lever action. So the lever comes down, you place the right, you place the cartridge in the top, push it into the breech, then you close it back up, fire, pull the lever back down. The round is eject, and that's the other thing. And it's, it's, it's ejected. You, the soldier isn't actually ejected it himself now. So I said before the Snyder, he has to pull the breech block back, which has a ejector on it. But now it's all automatically done within that mechanism. So that's another leap in that technology. So now he's so now he can get more rounds off with this Martini. And obviously the Martini Henry becomes most famous during the Zulu War. No, definitely. And it's it's <clears throat> again, as we said, amazing leap forward and the quickness doubles again. And you're able to put like concentrated volume of fire in within within such a short time as well. And you've got to understand like and the leaps forward are going bound and bound and bound. And as we talked about, as I said about the metallic cartridges, the first sort of cartridges used with the martini, for example, were uh, like a foil or brass. Mm. So they're very sort of like 
prone to getting sort of dented and things and there were there were reliability issues they still work fairly fine considering they were being used basically through the majority of the zulu wars um with the uh, foil brass but later you would find the sort of solid metallic brass cartridges being used mm. but but it was still one of those stepping stones things need to be improved things need to be trialed things need to be seen how to be used in the field etc but the martini showed it's worth being a very very sturdy built rifle um being used for several basically for about two decades or so and for example like the the um sniders weren't completely out of issue they were being used by rear line troops and they were given to colonial troops as well at this period and the same happens with basically the service rifles through history the old service rifles will be given to say like uh colonial units for example like um the gurkhas uh, and Indian troops will be using the previous service rifle. So there will always be somewhere that's being used. But uh, the Martini probably is one of the probably the most famous service rifles of that period, really, I would say. Yeah, I think so. Because um, the other thing as well, with the uh, Martini, they actually went, when, when the British Army went over to 303, they actually rechambered them. They rechambered them to take 303, and you'll find um, cavalry and artillery units are using them, even in, in, into the First World War. Um, you'll see some cavalrymen and artillery units, especially in 1914 15. Um, you'll see photographs um, with the, with, like, especially well, the cavalry, some of these yeomanry units, like from the territorials, with uh, a Martini Henry in the bucket, where you'd find an SMLE. They've actually got a Martini. Um, slid in there and they've got their uh, bandolier belt going across them but it's uh, individual rounds so they can just pull the round out slide it in fire it but obviously when it comes to the first world war it's a different kind of war so um, the martini does does fade it's you know it does uh, fade away quite quickly when the first world war comes along no definitely definitely and even with the martini units or main frontline service that then goes on to the new um issue of different rifles um for example i think it's all the last sort of hurrah for the martini and it's sort of like mainline role being the service rifles probably the sudanese campaign i believe and were the the one of the earlier sudanese campaigns um and then gradually becomes replaced by the uh lee medford rifles indeed and then we've also rechambered we've gone we've gone smaller now so we're mm. now 303 mm, indeed indeed and we've gone smaller and gradually as well, um, new technology, not just with the cartridges, but also, as, as we said, it's a small diameter bullet, but also the technology of smokeless powder comes in as well. Yep. Um, this is a huge leap forward in firearms technology. You've got now rounds that can travel faster, um, flatter trajectory as well. Um, and obviously you don't cleaner. have the big, Exactly, much, much cleaner. And you don't have that big, massive cloud of smoke pointing your position out to everyone and everyone and their mothers um saying here i am i'm firing at you so and it, it it's such a massive leap forward you've got you can have so much more power behind not just rifles but every single sort of um firearm that the that the army possesses from as i said from rifles to cannon to anything beyond um and it's it's such a massive leap forward and also as i was saying with the new edition of the new rifle the lee medford you now have a, ma a magazine bolt action quick firing rifle now. Um, and it's such a massive leap forward and gives the soldier, again, massive new leap forward in firepower. 
and it's these gradual increments which which lead us into um what we sort of see today but let pete um give a little uh rundown on the lee medford yeah so the uh lee metford um so this is now coming into that sort of lee enfield family which will become very prominent in the uh 20th century um as jake mentioned before um it's now a bolt action so a lot of countries are, are moving towards bolt actions now um and it's magazine it's got a magazine as well which is quite advanced as well because a lot of the other countries that are going down this bolt action route They've only got five rounds, so they they can only insert five rounds into their rifles. Where with our rifles, we can actually insert ten rounds. Um, very accurate, um, and the and the and the and the three hundred three round is actually quite long as well because it's almost curved at the top, um, so it does a lot of damage when that hits when that hits somebody. So this is still arcing back from like that time of the Zulu War when you've got all these blokes trying to swarm you and you want to take them down. And that's what this bullet's going to do. It's it's small, but it does pack a punch. Really, really thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please um, check out our other videos on the um, of the podcast. Be much appreciated. If you'd like to donate, there's a PayPal link down below. If you'd like to check us out on all our different um, social media platforms, either, either it be Facebook, Twitter, um, through, the, uh, through TikTok, um for, for example mine which would be in the description and uh steve's as well and also check out uh the uh ox and bucks group as well which is what pete um runs very very really appreciate all the help you guys can give us and i hope you join us for the next episode when we'll be going into the 20th century thank you very much and bye for now yeah.